Welcome to the RAB Poetry Podcast, where we bring you the stories behind the words, where every poem has a story behind it. Our podcast is a journey through the hearts and minds of poets as we delve into the inspirations, struggles, and triumphs that fuel their work. In each episode, we'll feature a poem, sharing the underlying stories and reciting the most powerful and moving pieces. From various poems on wide variety of topics and rising poets and authors, our podcast is the perfect companion for anyone who loves poetry and the power of words. Whether you're a seasoned poetry enthusiast or just getting started, you'll find something to love on the RAB Poetry Podcast. So tune in and let the stories of our poets take you on a journey of inspiration and emotion. Listen to the REB Poetry Podcast, available on all major platforms now. Welcome to Fandom Power. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It's uh, Wes and Andy. We're missing Hank tonight, but welcome back to Fandom Power, the show where we like to talk about all things fandom, all things pop culture. We are not just the Star Wars show. And this proves it. <laughs> this one does. But there is Star Wars in this show. So. It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A there is. Times. Okay, there is some Star Wars in here. Uh, I want to throw a quick sorry out there. Sorry that we did not go live on uh, sunday as we had intended so if you've been following along and saw that our schedule got changed i'm sorry that's my fault i had an electrical fire and uh (laughs) that inadvertently knocked out my internet which i just got restored uh today so yay internet um we're gonna do something a little different today so uh no secret here on the show that uh we do we love film and we love tv i mean my god we've built uh you know what i'm gonna flip us over here because once again i'm i've got us in the wrong configuration that's eh, okay there we go now i'm looking at you <laughs> okay that's better looking at the wall yeah um man all the review series that we've done i think speak kind of volumes to uh the depths that we will go for a property that we like and uh, i thought we'd approach it i, I really we both really kind of thought this was going to be a good one uh, I have to say much, much thanks, much props to Andy for doing uh, a considerable amount of the legwork on this one. Um, I kind of feel, uh, you know, like I just got to slide in and kind of host this one. So thank you for doing all of the, uh, it's a rabbit hole groundwork sure. to, to put this one together. All right. So, I mean, we talk about movies and TV and the stuff that we like to do. I think, I mean, for anybody for that matter. I mean, whether it's like the cast or the characters or there's a whole lot of elements that go into a film or a TV show that kind of make it the music memorable. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I I think one of the big parts for for us um, is like just the general the world building, you know, the the feeling you get when you know you're actually looking at a glimpse of that world. Yeah, I absolutely. And I mean, like, in a like, say let's, we're doing like a 20th century kind of drama period piece. It It's not, man, it's maybe not as difficult when you're trying to do like a modern thing, but even like trying to do something in, in like earth's history, like, oh, I want to do a thing from the 1930s, the effort that goes into coming up with period appropriate dress and cars and making sure that the streets look like they did in the 1930s and just 
the amount of of effort that goes into world building just it can really uh, it's huge. yeah and it really can add something uh to any production well listen there's a whole bunch a bunch of other things that go into to world building costuming is obviously a big one but uh one that i had thought way way back would be kind of fun to look at and uh i mean you agreed with me because <laughs> you really dove in on it was uh why don't we do a little discussion on props and uh here we are and interestingly enough <laughs> what is it today uh today is uh february 22nd of 2022 tuesday 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 february 22nd 2022 and it just so happens yeah so coincidentally enough tonight what we're gonna do we've got 22 props that we're gonna look at on uh, tuesday the 22nd of february in 2022 that's a whole lot of twos in case you're not if you're counting um but more so it's not just 22 uh props it's going to be 22 reused props uh so these are things that have that have turned up in like multiple uh, multiple movies and or television some both mm. um and i think the list that we've put together for you here is actually it's pretty cool it's it's a pretty diverse list it is from very big to very small. Yeah. 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 It's all over the place. But, um, and I thought about this, you know, if this actually, uh, if this episode is received really well, maybe we can update it next year or 23 and 23. Find some more. We'll just add one more. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just edit the episode. Add one more 23 and 23. There you go. All right. Okay. You want to get started? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. So, uh, we're going to kick it off. First prop on our list. This is probably one of the uh, the biggest uh, props on our list, and that uh, just happens to be uh, what is it here? It is the Harrier jump jet from uh, True Lies. Well, I got to set my thing up here. I lost it. There it is. True Lies. In case you're uh, you've forgotten, she even took the ice cube trays out of the freezer. What kind of a sick bitch takes the ice cube trays out of the freezer? Oh, Tom Arnold, and yeah. he's he kind of makes that movie one of right? his best roles. <laughs> All right, the Harrier jump jet in this movie—it's kind of cool because it's uh, not a real jet; it's a fiberglass replica. Uh, as I said, it was originally constructed for uh, 1996's True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and of course, my personal favorite, Tom Arnold—he makes that movie. And uh, actually, this this thing—I I thought that was sort of a, a one, and, one done. and done. I thought. You know, is that a real plane? And then, because first I'm like, no, that's not. That's got to be some kind of like miniature or something. But then when they threw an actor on top of it, I'm mm. like, wait, there's something really there. Turns out there really was something there. And it came back, came back in 2012, actually. Uh, and of course, in 2012, it's just a little movie that you might have heard of. Uh, there's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it. I don't know. We might have heard this one. I don't know. 2012. Of uh, the Avengers 2012, uh, believe it or not, the same uh, Harrier model, uh, it's in a full-scale model, showed up in uh, the Avengers. It was on the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier. And uh, in that movie, Thor and the Hulk, when they're duking it out, uh, Thor actually tosses the Hulk into it. And, uh, you know, Hulk being Hulk just uh, rips a wing off and throws it back at him. Hulk smash. He does smash. Um, And then after that, it kind of disappears again. But um for all of you film enthusiasts out there in case you're wondering 
it still exists and you can go and see it because it's sitting at the Volo uh, Auto Museum in Volo, Illinois, where uh, one side of the jet has been, uh, well, what, two years to, uh, to restore this thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the owners have dressed one side in its Avengers colors. The shield logos. and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then on the other side, they've got it sort of dressed up as it appeared in True Lies to sort of honor and recognize both movies. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a cool little piece that you so can, you can go still on. go visit, get your photo taken and. Yeah. And uh, some memories from your favorite side. It's cool that they're all the, the cosplayers in front of it. Uh, I wonder if like, it makes you wonder, like if you're an actor and you've been in these films, like, do you go and, and check this stuff out? Like when it becomes available to the public, I would think so. Do you revisit this stuff or is it like, you know, I never, you know, I don't watch my own movies. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like maybe some people I can see Mark Ruffalo going though. That seems like a pretty normal guy. Mm-hmm. All right. So the next one uh, that's coming up on our list is actually kind of uh, it's kind of mundane and it's not actually meant to stand out. But uh, this might actually be the most reused prop on our list, because once you see it, you can't unsee it and you will see it in just about. Well, you'll see it every time it comes up. Yep. And uh, that happens to be uh, this specific newspaper. Um, we see it in uh, in No Country for Old Men, uh, the 2007 movie starring uh, Tommy Lee Jones. And, uh, yeah. You want to drive out there? No, oh, it's all I had to look for, and it sounded like these old boys died of natural causes. Well, how's that, Sheriff? Natural to the line of work. So that's actually the, the line of dialogue from the sequence in the film where he's actually reading the newspaper. and uh, But the paper, of course, I'm, I'm going to bring that slide up here now. That uh, oh, I lost it. Sorry, it was I was already on the right slide. There you go. The paper itself, it's not a real newspaper. It's a it's a prop paper, and it comes from a company called the Earl Hayes Press. Now they're over in uh, Sun Valley, California, and they've been around for a long time. They started back in uh, 1915 as a regular commercial print shop. But uh, I guess there was a lot of demand at the time for uh, print materials in Hollywood. So they very quickly, uh, they pivoted and converted their whole operation into film and TV prop making. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever spotted uh, fake food packaging or fake cigarettes, uh, even replica license plates, ID cards, even money, there's a pretty good chance that uh, they were printed by Earl Hayes. And uh, cool little point here at one point uh they actually spent a lot of time doing some goodwill work with law enforcement uh where for certain operations they actually provided different agencies with uh counterfeit currency and fake ids huh uh but apparently they don't they don't do that anymore i wonder if there's uh, any floating around still <laughs> i'm sure there is well i on the research part of that i actually was reading uh there was an interview with the I can't think of the gentleman's name, the guy who runs it. And they were talking about uh, what happened when they were doing that. And they got the approval from, they got the approval from the, the United States treasury to, to make plates for the currency. And at the end of whatever it was that they were doing, the secret service actually showed up and supervised the destruction of all of the currency and the plates. Oh, there you go. Yeah. 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 So kind of a cool little thing though. <laughs> All right. Uh, the prop newspaper was uh, first printed. Uh, yeah. So as I said, in the sixties as a period paper and, uh, 
normally what happens is the front page, the front page is kept blank because you need to you, customize. Yeah. It you're going to want a movie you're doing. Yeah. You want to customize it for whatever production that you're making. Now we, I didn't realize that I'm surprised that you had this. Andy has, has a paper the from Valley telegraph. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an Earl Hayes uh, production. So flip it open to the interior page and, and show the, the inside of it at home. Yeah. And, uh, that uh, indeed for those of you who are watching recycle the articles yeah so i mean uh, i mean i'm gonna put up so i'm gonna there's our paper our actual physical paper here in the studio i'm gonna put this slide up i mean look at that uh so yeah it does get reused quite extensively in uh, in the research i was looking at the back to the future stuff sure and because somebody had suggested that it was the same thing yeah but yeah, yeah. not all the issues have the same configuration of articles oh but they were from earl hayes to the point where even some of the articles written in there yeah have yeah. a byline saying by earl hayes <laughs> that's cool so uh so earl earl hayes is long gone he's no longer uh, with us but the company still bears his name and in fact i can't god i wish i'd written down the the gentleman's name the guy who runs the place the guy who runs it he said that he met earl hmm. he started working there when he was really young said he was a pretty uh pretty like uh um straight shooter yeah driven to like job driven right yeah. no surprise though coming from that that generation well you go online and you see their catalog and it's pretty extensive it is uh, i mean they offer the uh the the <laughs> the fake food labels that are just like one letter off yep. <laughs> yeah it's like going uh going to uh you know asia and buying a pair of reborks and if i'm not mistaken they're also responsible for that playpen magazine uh the the playpen yeah which is your rip on playboy oh that totally makes sense yeah, yeah, which yeah you would yeah. have seen in like child's play three or well that actually ties into the next point that i want to talk about because uh part of the reason why uh the paper gets recycled is that when you want to it all boils down to product placement right yeah you gotta I mean, pay for a license product placement is uh is big big money and i know a guy that i went to high school with he actually worked uh worked in film and did it's like was heavily involved in product placement at one time and and he was pretty adamant about how much money it costs to get certain things in but they will build hollywood will build an entire shot say around you know uh for example you know this this cup they'll build it around the the logo just so that the logo is always in showing the camera which is kind of funny and it's almost its own joke when you look at have you seen uh, ryan reynolds last couple of movies yeah we talked about this before the giant wall of aviation gin bottles facing yep. the camera <laughs> or how much he paid to have uh what was it the b arthur t-shirt show up in deadpool oh i never even i didn't realize that yeah i think he paid something like 20 grand to the what, estate to her oh to her estate yeah that makes sense yeah all right so the paper itself um yeah, you can save you a ton if you're making a film. Can save you a lot of money because uh, you don't want to use like one. The New right, York right, Times right. or whatever. Um, I don't know. You want to run down some of the headlines? Yeah, some of them are kind of goofy. Like you get the uh, she's third brightest, but hard gal to see. Yeah. <laughs> Compromise housing bill sent to president for okay. Here's a good one. This one almost seems pretty top. It seems pretty topical. UN debates Mid East crisis, hopes for early solution. Yeah, kind of getting timeless there. Yeah, 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 yeah. This one kind of does reflect uh, Back to the Future. Valley area records record growth. Record growth, yeah. And yeah. that one is in this pun. Compromise, divorce, reform measure passed. <laughs> and then board waves hearing for two university teachers. Right. And so, I mean, again, you see sort of the same 
the same headlines turn up all the time. And so like when you look at it and you realize how many different productions it's been in, yep. it's been in uh, just a short list here. Charmed, Desperate Housewives, excuse me, uh, several uh, episodes of Married with Children. Ah, home sweet hell. <laughs> Kind of All right, funny. Yeah. He got to read it twice. Like, oh, I know. Yeah, because he did it. With uh, Modern, Family. Modern Family and uh, Married with Children. Yeah, yeah. That's maybe cool. it's the same one. He just kept it. You know what? Well, you know the funny thing is, I don't think he did. Like, probably not. Now that I'm looking at these, and I know that I've seen it before, but like, even in the in the the screenshots here, like, that's a pretty thin paper. Like, it doesn't it look any it doesn't look any thicker than the one you brought over. <laughs> no, like literally, it's a four four page thing, two sheets. No, it doesn't. All right. The next one on our list. If you were a sharp-eyed viewer you might have spotted this one before very sharp okay we're not talking about the the sword that uh in the picture that we're looking at here that uh, the bride's carrying but in 2003's kill bill volume one the bride uh, does go up against uh the crazy 88s mm-hmm. and of course all the crazy 88s are armed with uh, samurai swords and uh, what's cool about that is uh, two of those swords uh, turned up a couple of years later in another uh, kind of cult classic movie. Two swords, two years later. Yeah, so uh, two years later, uh, Sin City, uh, directed by Robert Rodriguez, the, uh, the Crazy 88 Swords turn up where they're wielded by uh, Miho played by Devin Ayaki. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool because uh, Tarantino and Rodriguez, they're friends, right? Yeah. They've collaborated before. Uh, Tarantino kept a couple of the swords. He was keeping them in his garage and had offered them to Rodriguez to use uh, in Sin City. Nice. But, and this is a big, but because actually it gets a lot better. This is a cool story too, right? On the Sin City DVD extra features, Frank Miller, the creator of Sin City, has personally retconned Miho's swords to have actually been created by the legendary swordsmith Hattori Hanzo, played by Sonny Chiba. Nice. So again, talking about that metaverse thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they really do. They really do. All right. Uh, so we just talked about uh, ancient swords. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, how about some modern armor or futuristic armor? Futuristic, sure. I guess so. Although I don't know when I look at this stuff, I don't really think of it as being very armored. Um, anyway, let's move on. How about you, son? Infantry, sir. Good for you. Mobile infantry made me the man I am today. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, Starship Troopers. The uh, the armor uh, in Starship Troopers, essentially it's a custom vest with some integrated webbing and an open-faced helmet. Uh, the armor was really a major disappointment for fans of the source material because I think most people who had read the book expected to see the power suits that were described in it. Um, I did not read the original source material, so what I saw, I quite enjoyed. If you, But did you watch any of the other Starship Trooper uh, I properties? I've seen the second one, but I haven't seen any of the other No, ones. none of the animated stuff? No. There's another one, like uh, Roughnecks, the Starship Trooper Chronicles. Uh, got a little bit better where they started including some of the more, the 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 armor, the the mechanized stuff. And then there's a there's a direct, uh, direct-to-video 
um, animated film. It's actually Johnny Rico, uh, the the actor who plays Johnny Rico, actually comes back as Johnny Rico. He's much older now, hmm. and they do show off like all of the powered suits. All right, but that armor, the armor is actually showing up in a few other things, at least uh, four other productions here, and uh, two of those being uh, uh, Power Rangers properties, believe it or not, including uh, 1999's Power Rangers Lost Galaxy, uh, also showed up in the 2001 remake of Planet of the Apes. That's the uh, Mark Wahlberg one. Directed by Tim Burton. Yes, at the end of the movie when uh, when Mark Wahlberg's character comes back to... Uh, the Lincoln, well, it's not the Lincoln Memorial anymore. But no, I, guess, I don't know what you want to call it there. Monkey Lincoln? I guess so. Ape, Ape Lincoln. Ape Lincoln. Ape there you go. Lincoln Memorial. Uh, they rock up on him with a bunch of police and uh, the motorcycle cop is uh, wearing uh, one of the helmets. All in the black varnish. Yeah, but I mean, probably to me, to my way of thinking, I know that uh, it was a high-profile piece, but I mean, when you talk about sort of cult classic, uh, Joss Whedon's Firefly, the the armor turned up as the Alliance military armor. Nice. Uh, I thought so, too. Well, my days are not taking you seriously. They're certainly coming to a middle. <laughs> and although it was given a purple repaint uh, for the show, I mean, it's still blatantly obvious uh, if you recognize it right down to the webbing and like the uh, the canteens and stuff hanging off of it. It's all the same anyway. Apparently with that, some of them were still stained with the bug guts from Starship. Oh, really? Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, though, because like it's going to come up later here on our list about like a lot of the props and stuff like. The, these prop houses or these prop companies, I mean, it just makes sense that uh, when you're making a movie, you're essentially making several smaller companies yeah. to make your movie. And so like at the end of the movie, you have to dissolve all of those companies. Well, who wants to be stuck with a, a ton of assets that they can't get rid of? True. I mean, this is why sets get destroyed. They just get written off as part mm-hmm. of the production cost. But yeah, so um, Actually, there's a good one for our uh, prop settings. What's oh yeah when we do settings yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we'll get to that one the later. Com- the companion piece to uh, prop culture we're gonna hopefully we're gonna get to do uh, locations yeah. and and when the weather gets better because we live in a very uh, rife part of uh, Ontario Canada a stones throw we are a stones throw away from several high profile recent high profile film and TV locations so uh, there's a good chance we'll get to go and visit those but uh, going back to props. I think it's fair to say not all props are created equally new. Uh, no, they are not. Okay. But sometimes they can, uh, they can sort of uh, occupy more than one space, right? If not multiple. Sure. And that's sort of the case with the, uh, the next one. Oh, Hey, we got a first comment coming in here from Facebook tonight. It's from uh, our friend here, Garrett, who, uh, Oh my Lord, why am I not being able to show this? Wow. I'd love to be able to put your comment up Garrett, but right now I cannot. Let me just try this another way. There, there we, go. we go. I wonder why it didn't allow me to do that. Strange. Hello from Prince Edward Island. Well, hello to you, Garrett, in Prince Edward Island. Happy to have you along. Hope you're enjoying the show. Uh, Garrett used to live right here, uh, right here locally in our little uh, neck of the woods. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I hope the weather is good for you out there because it's crappy here for us right now. All right. So, yeah, um, the next one on our list, as I said, it kind of it bridges... A couple of a uh, couple of categories. This really one is blurs yeah. the lines. Well, yeah, between because a prop and 
not a prop. Is it a prop or is it a costume? And taking on a separate identity, it becomes even more. Well, that's it. Is it a prop? Is it a costume? Is it a character? Something more. I think, uh, I think it's fair to say that it actually, it's all three. It's taken a life of its own. Sure. It has. All right. Let me just put this up here now. Okay. So, uh, the idea of humanoid robots in film is not a new thing, and it kind of goes back like all the way to 1927's Metropolis. But in this case, uh, let me just flip that over here. In that case, that is correct, sir. <laughs> For your convenience, I am monitored to respond to the name Robbie. Yeah, Robbie the robot uh, out of 1956's Forbidden Planet uh, is a media icon. Uh, having appeared uh, in 45 on-screen appearances over six decades. Um, (laughs) That is like astronomical. It's almost to the level of the newspaper. You think about how many times, how many times personally do you think you've seen Robbie, like different stuff? Oh, lost count. I, I honestly didn't think that he had that many appearances, but then you start reading into it 45 and he's in places you don't think he would be. No, some of them are pretty obscure. We're going to talk about a couple of those, but I kind of, I wrote some of them down. I did not write them all down, but I just want to go through the decades. So starting back in the 1950s, not only did he show up in forbidden planet, but he turned up in things like the invisible boy and uh, Rod Serling's original uh, twilight zone. Then we bounce ahead to the 1960s with appearances in The Addams Family, The Man from Uncle, uh, Lost in Space, by the way. Lost in Space might actually be his most famous appearance outside of Forbidden Planet because in that, he actually fights the Robinson family robot. Danger. danger. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, uh, oh, 1970s. Shows up with my uh, favorite uh, television gumshoe. Uh, Excuse me. One more question. Uh, Columbo. <laughs> oh, and one more question. Uh, turns up in Wonder Woman and uh, Mark calling Olsen. Mark calling Olsen. Mark and Mindy. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. What's cool is in the 1970s that uh, one, one other appearance from Robbie uh, was on an album cover. Hmm. Remember KTEL Records? Yes. KTEL Records. Robbie the Robot turned up on the cover of this record. He's actually in the TV commercial too, as well. It's original music power, the KTEL music machine with Manfred Van. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Skip ahead to the 1980s. He's in uh, Gremlins. Earth Girls Are Easy with uh, Jim Carrey and uh, Gina Davis and uh, um, 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 Jeff Goldblum. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then in the 90s, he took a decade off. He didn't do anything in the 1990s. So we get Peter, the- Peter into rest. Get to the 2000s, he's in Looney Tunes back in action. He's in an AT&T commercial, which featured a bunch of other famous Hollywood robots like uh, Rosie from the Jetsons and, of course, Kiss from uh, Knight Rider. And then uh, in 2004, Robbie the Robot was inducted into the Robot Hall of Fame. And then uh, making his final, uh, most recent and final television appearance in 2014 in an episode of The Big Bang Theory. Got another fun fact for you here. Uh, right now, uh, in February 2022, Robbie the Robot is actually the most expensive movie prop ever sold, having brought in a whopping $5.375 million in a 2017 auction. 
So, man, I thought we were doing well with some of the other stuff, like the lightsaber prop. Mm -hmm. But then I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) Whoa. So uh, life after being dissolved, it's out there. (laughs) If you can afford it. I guess. All right. So who knows? Who knows when Robbie will turn up again? But he's he's definitely a screen icon. So I'm sure we'll see him again. Okay. So now... Let's get on to uh, the first uh, car on our list because we have a uh, we have a couple that we want to talk about tonight. But uh, first car, and that is uh, the Reactor Show Car. This one was built in uh, 1966 by a gentleman uh, by the name of Gene Winfield. The car actually started life with another name. It was originally called the Autorama Special when a, a car show promoter Joe uh, Kizis. Am I saying that right? Kizis. I think so. Joe Kazis gave Winfield a $20,000 commission to build him an aluminum bodied show car. And it's pretty snazzy. If you ask me, I mean, I see that. Well, it's absolutely futuristic. At first I'm like, is that a Corvette? What is that? Like, I thought it was just a highly modified something else. A three wheeled vehicle though. Yeah. 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 Turns out that uh, the car is built on a 1956 Citroen chassis. And it's powered by a Corvair engine, hmm. uh, features electronically op- uh, operated doors, hood, and roof, and is finished off in that uh, metallic green and gold paint job. Which is pretty slick. It is pretty slick. And by today's standards, expensive. Uh, big time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the reactor ended up gaining a lot of attention as it toured around the United States, appearing in various car shows, and that attention got it noticed by Hollywood. Well, and the results of that... Well, let's just say that the results are, uh, they're a little varied. (laughs) All right, here we go. (laughs) Yeah, the car's first appearance was in 1966 uh, in Bewitched, season three, the episode titled uh, Supercar. And uh, in this one, Samantha's mother and Dora actually tries to make friends with Darren, who they were always at odds. Did you watch... I watched watch a little bit. I did. I watched it with my mom quite a bit. There you go. Yeah. So, I mean, Andorra would show up and Darren would be like, oh, not again. But anyway, Andorra uh, actually tries to make friends with Darren instead of antagonizing him in this one by magically whipping up this fantastic sports car that he's been drooling all over in in this car magazine. So uh, Darren takes it out for a test drive and unfortunately discovers a number plate. And he realizes that Andorra didn't actually... Uh, magic up the car that she just teleported it from Detroit, making it a stolen car. (laughs) (laughs) And of course he's got to get it back, but he's already had it on the road now and hilarity ensues. Pretty car, uh, hard to hide that particular model. Well, you know, then we get to 1967 where, Oh boy. Yeah, the uh, featured in the season three episode, the funny feline felonies. The car was ridiculously dressed up as Catwoman's kitty car, complete with whiskers, ears, and a tail. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that just looks awful. They probably couldn't modify it too, too much. Well, so they maybe probably stuck on with Velcro. You have to imagine anything that they would do to the car. They've got to be able to undo, undo it. Oh, <laughs> uh, but you know what? Uh, 1968, the reactor finally, and I think that this, to me, this is the role that the car was probably made for.
the season two episode of a Star Trek entitled Bread and Circuses, the Enterprise crew encounters a civilization based on the Roman Empire, except that uh, they actually have 20th century technology. In fact, uh, the episode makes a point of telling us uh, that the planet is horribly, horribly polluted. So even with electric doors and openers and whatnot, it's still a gas guggling uh, <laughs> road monster. It's still a 60s carbureted car. Yep. <laughs> Anyway, the reactor, it, I mean, it had a very fleeting uh, appearance on the episode. It showed up basically when the, when the Enterprise is orbiting the planet. They actually start picking up broadcast signals from the planet, and they get, like, the TV commercial. For the Jupiter 8. Yeah, for the Jupiter 8, which is the reactor, right? So because of that, uh, what they ended up doing was they got William Shatner to pose as Captain Kirk for a bunch of publicity shots that would end up uh, getting published uh, in a bunch of car magazines anyway. Any publicity is good publicity. Got another fun fact for you. Uh, shortly after building the reactor, Gene Winfield went to work for a company called Aluminum Model Toys. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, AMT, the model kit company. And if you know anything about AMT, then you know that they were the ones responsible for building the uh, the Galileo shuttlecraft. So Gene Winfield himself was actually responsible for the construction of the full-size Galileo and the original Klingon battlecruiser uh, shooting model that was used throughout the uh, original production. So well, the car got him through the door. Absolutely. It, you know, a part of the, the, the deal with the, with the reactor was he was looking for a way to, to showcase his skills. And I mean, mission accomplished. There's another car. It's not technically on our list, but it gets a mention is another gene Win well there's two i think there's three gene winfield cars uh, in our list tonight hmm. yeah so i mean the guy's work is is prolific i don't know you know is he like is he up there with like barris i think so probably okay the next prop on our list actually it says it's mini well it's mini in the name but in reality it's uh anything but isn't it all right come on in all painless is waiting Nice. Yeah, the M134 minigun, referred to as Old Painless, by Jesse Ventura's character Blaine Cooper in the 1987 Predator. So, uh, in reality, the M134, <laughs> the stats for this thing are crazy, um, 7.62 millimeter, six-barreled rotary machine gun, uses an external electric motor capable of firing between 2,000 and 6,000 rounds per minute. When you really want to cut the jungle down. <sighs> I guess so. <laughs> uh, so the actual M134 is used by various branches of the United States military, but it is always mounted. It is actually impossible to fire this gun handheld with live ammunition because it generates a peak recoil force of about 300 pounds. Making Arnold it Arnold could handle well it. with live ammo. Oh, <laughs> I don't know about that. Nice heyday. Maybe in the film after Cooper's death, Mac Elliott, played by uh, Bill Duke, uses it to try to kill the predator alien. Of course, we know how unsuccessful that was, but darn it, if he didn't look badass trying, oh. he nicked him though, because he we did get a little bit of predator blood. He did, yes, is that's but, the first, yeah, the it's the first, time. yeah, the first thing to cut it. Yeah, but nobody notices except the uh, the girl who doesn't speak English. Oh, right, right. She's right, the right. only one to take notice because it's green blood. Oh, Ron, get out of here. 
Right, right, right. Okay. Like the rest of the weapons uh, that were used in the filming of Predator, the M134 was supplied by Stembridge Gun Rentals of Hollywood. At one time, the company was the leading weapons provider for the American film and television industry, serving Hollywood for 87 years. It's a stretch. It is a stretch. Uh, at their peak uh, in the 1980s, Stembridge actually had an arsenal of over 10,000 guns. They were stocked and ready to I, go. I guess so. Uh, but then, you know, kind of weirdly, uh, there was a, a, a legal settlement of a family estate, and that kind of forced Stembridge to sell off most of its arsenal. And uh, in 2013, uh, the company, now just a, a, a shell of its former self, actually left Hollywood and moved out to Glendale. Hmm. So the minigun uh, for Predator, it was fitted with the handguard assembly from an M60 machine gun. Of course, that one was made famous in, uh, in the Rambo movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was installed backwards uh, under the minigun's barrel so the actors could hold it from the bottom. Uh, it was also fitted with a pistol grip attached via a custom Y-frame, and it sported an M16-style carry handle on the top. But because the weapon carried a considerable amount of weight, a special shoulder strap was also fitted to help the actors carry it. So, <laughs> even though they were only firing blank ammunition, the M134 uh, still had its uh, rate of fire reduced to a mere 1,250 RPM partly to make the recoil a bit more manageable, but also to conserve ammunition. And uh, this reduction would also play uh, into how it looked on screen. At its full rate, uh, it was pretty much a blur. And as Jesse Ventura would describe it, it was like shooting a chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But uh, in uh, 1991, the M134 from Stembridge would make a triumphant return to the big screen in the massive summer blockbuster. Yeah, Terminator 2. Okay. Judgment Day. Absolutely. Uh, Terminator 2, this time around, the reprogrammed Terminator would use the M134 to pin down a number of police outside of the Cyberdyne Systems building. And again, it wouldn't hit anyone. <laughs> no, but I mean, did you see how, how well those uh, cars flew up into the air? Yeah. <laughs> Destroyed a bunch of cars in the process. Now, the uh, M60 handguards have been removed, but uh, in the film, you can still see remnants of the, uh, the M16-style handle uh, up on the top. Well, if the M134 is the fastest prop on our list, then the next one we're going to talk about is by far the absolute slowest. Yep. What do you think? Shall we move over to the next one? They're both painful. Well, they are. All right, the next one on our list comes from All right. In the uh, 1989 Batman directed by Tim Burton, we can see the uh, collection of surgical instruments. Uh, these were used by uh, Dr. Davis to reconstruct the Joker's face and uh, he points at them as they're laying there on a tray. Look what they has to work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a mix of hemostats and scissors, and there's what, what I've been able to identify as a hand crank bone drill uh, and some garish toothy looking things that I, I honestly could not identify. 
I mean that there's a long thing there. Almost looks like a like a golf club looking thing. Maybe I don't know what that is. Listen, if you guys, I mean, uh, you guys are super sleuths out there. If you know what this stuff is, drop us a line at our social media. Send us an email because I've been wondering what the heck this thing is for like 33 years, right? All right. Um. So anyway, though, this is not the first time that we've seen them, though. At least, at least in part, anyway, because. Uh, feed me, Crabble, feed me now! Uh, I can't! I'm starving! At least a few of these uh, instruments... Oh, have I gone too far? I went too far. There we go. Uh, a few of the instruments, including the bone drill, were actually used by the deranged uh, dentist Oren Scrivillo, played by Steve Martin in uh, 1986's Little Shop of Horrors. Fantastic movie. Uh, I, yeah, I, I need to go and see it again. <laughs> Yo. Rick Moranis is awesome. In that set, we can see uh, the bone drill is there and at least one of the, the toothy golf club looking thing. I still don't know what that is. Please help out there. Anyone, anyone. Um, but now the set also includes, uh, looks like a, what looks like a file. There's some clamps there and what appears to be some kind of retractor. Nothing I've ever seen at the dentist. No. And I mean, I worked in healthcare and I don't recognize a lot of this stuff because, hey, I didn't do surgery. So not really, no, no surprise there. All right, everyone. It's trivia time. Uh, I got a question for you. For 1 million fandom points, besides the surgical instruments that we just talked about, Name another way that the little shop of horrors is connected to Batman. It's okay. We'll wait. We'll give you a few seconds. Anything? Anything? Anyone? <laughs> All right, guys. If you said Jack Nicholson, you're right. And uh, the reason you're right is because uh, not only did Jack Nicholson play the Joker in the 89 Batman, he also played Wilbur Force, the masochistic dental patient of the original 1960 Little Shop of Horrors. And that's a role uh, that would go to Bill Murray in the 86 version. Mm -hmm. All right, we got another car coming up on our list here. All right. Ready for the next one? All right. This next one comes from... Yeah, it's the 1957 Ford Custom 300 in the 1960 horror film Psycho. Now, in that film, the car is driven by Marion Crane, who is uh, played by Scream Queen Janet Leigh, who, uh, in case you didn't know, just happens to be the mother of horror movie legend Jamie Lee Curtis, a Scream Queen in her own right. Now, the Ford Custom, it was built uh, intermittently between 1949 and 1981, but it's the third generation uh, that started in 57 that had become this like big icon, both on and off the screen with this long hood and sweeping tail fins. It was a hot car in its time. So both the custom and the custom 300 were lower models of the Ford Fairlane and the Fairlane 500, which is another car that would get the Hollywood spotlight in a 1990 action comedy of the same name starring the dice man cometh andrew dice clay bada bing and that's all i'm gonna say because yeah. i don't want i want to keep the show in the g range <laughs> <laughs> not much of his content is not really all right so 
1998, the Ford 57 Custom 300 would come back in another cult classic horror film. And this one's actually, it's pretty cool because uh, in Halloween H2O, 20 years later, uh, it's not just the car, but Janet Lee uh, turns up with the car. And in the scene, they actually play a piece of the Psycho score as a bit of a callback to that. So, uh, and Janet Lee play, I can't think of the girl. Oh, what's her character name? Oh my God. Oh, I should have wrote it down. Anyway, she is part of the franchise she's not just a not just a random character that just turned up all right what do you think though from uh, psycho to halloween is this a is this a nice mother-daughter moment here i think so or is it hollywood nepotism yeah, they're both on the right <laughs> side of the film that's true that is so true all right we're going to change gears this time we're going to talk about another kind of car well more of a vehicle okay well maybe it's it's not exactly a car but it'll get you from point a to point b yeah all right it's the ufos from the 1953 war of the worlds and uh, aside from that cobra necked uh, laser weapon on top of the craft the the look of the martian spaceship really was sort of a reflection of the public's perception of what UFOs were thought to look like at the time, kind of basically round and flat. Mm. <laughs> and that's become this, like these classic design elements that have really informed the classic spaceship trope uh, that is science fiction spaceships. We got like from the Jupiter two in lost in space, like even the, the Cylon Raiders in Battlestar Galactica and uh, especially the alien fighters from independence day, which still have, they actually go back and put a, that the weapon on top. Yeah. Pretty similar lines. They all share some of the same design elements of those early Martian ships, but none of those ships compare to the next one on our list. Can I play that again? I'm going to play that again. Yeah, go for it. Robinson Crusoe on Mars. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to tell the tale of a guy who shipwrecked, is that like the like the most the jazzy, the most jazzy tune you could come up with? Like, yeah. this is a horrible story. This guy's marooned. He's shipwrecked. Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> come on it's right up there with snake jazz yeah okay robinson crusoe on mars because hey if you're gonna retell the story of shipwrecking a guy why not use the tried and true martian ships from the previous decade so besides the obvious uh repaint and the absence of the uh, cobra neck ray gun the ships uh also eliminated the green eyes from the underside opting instead for a large red disc so both films actually were uh, had the same director, Brian Haskin, uh, and the ships were created by uh, Albert Nozaki. All right. Uh, and this, this one's kind of near to me because, you know, when you're, when you're in a, uh, in a profession, you're in a field and, and your profession and your field is depicted in movies and TV and you just never watch it the same way. You're just like, oh, God, they did that wrong. You're this watching for accuracy. Right. So when it comes to military hardware 
sometimes you lose out on um what's the word credibility <laughs> can i say that there you go because unless the actual military is involved in the production your options usually consist of things that are either outdated out of service or from of another country or there's a fiberglass option well there is that uh, but here anyway anyway who needs credibility when you're talking about uh, triple x state of the union So the stealth tank uh, from State of the Union, uh, it does bear some visual similarities to uh, the United States M1 battle tank and the German Leopard 2 battle tank, but the reality is it's neither. It's actually 100% custom built. Hmm. Uses a cut-down Freightliner truck chassis and uh, rubber treads from an unknown piece of heavy construction equipment. Then uh, they added stealth panels, quote unquote, stealth panels to give the tank the, its unique look. It yeah. Is, yeah. The stealth tank, which I got to be honest with you, seeing it rolling down the road, I thought, and I'm like, what did they build that off of? I'm like, that's got to be a real tank. That's got to be a real. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a custom. But if you think you've seen it before, it's because you have. But you wouldn't see it again for a couple of years. And when it came back to the screen, it came back for two a round. Later. Yeah, two years later. Hey, another two. Came back for a round of Bayhem. <laughs> Autobots roll out. Because when it came back, it was in the 2007 movie Transformers, where the tank was uh, redressed and used as the vehicle mode for the evil Decepticon brawl. Uh, the only major difference in this t- uh, this time around was they added uh, looks like a mine plow on the front. And then uh, also changed the uh, armament on the upper turret to uh, twin cannons instead of a, a single one. All right. You know what? I've got a question. And uh, I don't know. Something like this. How about, uh, hey, Doc, what's the best way to generate 1.21 gigawatts of power? 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> <laughs> it's plutonium, right? No. No, no, of course not. It's the Mr. Fusion Home Energy Reactor, of course. Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? No, Marty, it's not. It's actually a coffee grinder from the Krupps Company. And if you're looking to build your own Mr. Fusion, it's actually model number 223A. And while the Mr. Fusion might be the most famous use of the Krupps coffee grinder, uh, Back to the Future 2, not not the first on-screen appearance in this one. No. No, because uh, that came 10 years earlier in the vacuum of space. Still don't understand what you're doing, Mr. Perfect organism. Ooh, and that's no just, can hear you scream. That's just chilly. Yeah, you know, that's just a tagline. Nobody actually says that, eh? No. It's where you're like, mm, that's the first thing I thought of. Is like, I need a clip for Alien. <laughs> it's like, nobody can hear you scream in space. Yeah, but nobody says that. They just don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It showed up in uh, Alien in 1979. There's actually, well, uh, there's a pair of them. And uh, here they are on the kitchen of the Nostromo, where they are some nondescript uh, kitchen appliance. Who knows? Maybe they were actually coffee grinders. I don't know. How much coffee were they drinking? How much fresh ground coffee are they drinking in space? Well, they need to be alert. I suppose so. Nice thing about the name. It was a nod to Mr. Coffee. 
Krups? Uh, no, oh, Mr. Fusion. Mr. Yeah. Fusion, yeah. Uh, na- uh, yeah, nod to Mr. Coffee. I wonder how Krups felt about that. Yeah. Why are you why are you calling out the competitor? <laughs> it's still a coffee machine. All right. This time I got a question for you. All right. What do you call a pirate movie without treasure? Not very good. Okay. I agree with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's hear. Let's take a look at this one. Okay, it's not really a pirate movie, but uh, 1985's The Goonies did feature a lost pirate treasure. There you go. One-eyed Willie's treasure. He was a pirate. He was a pirate. The gold coins in this film, they were created specifically for The Goonies, and uh, they were cast in metal and adorned with a Spanish uh, crest. Now, in the research part of the show, one source I had read said that they were uh, painted with a burnished faux gold finish. And another one said that they were cast in bronze. They can so, get expensive. But well, back in the 80s, right? But either way, I mean, they look fantastic on film. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've these coins have grown legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also wings, because in 1991, they took a trip over to, uh, well, they, they made a trip to Neverland. Say it, Peter. Say it and mean it. I believe in fairies. Yeah, in the uh, in the Spielberg sequel to Peter Pan, Hook with uh, Robin Williams, uh, the coins turned up in uh, in the treasure there as well. I wonder though, because it's not just that specific coin, so maybe they had to you know reinvest in some more. I designs. wonder though, like, would you mix it up though? With I mean, Neverland obviously being sort of the the fantasy place. I mean, yeah. you probably would. You want to mix up your treasure just to have the variety. Yeah, but the fact that the coins still existed. They're still in, well, I don't want to say circulation, film circulation, I film guess. Circulation. Yeah, in yeah. film circulation, uh, that they're getting used. And apparently Spielberg really likes these coins because, well, he thought he would use them again. And uh, man, the coins could not save what became one of the most divisive franchise movies of all time. That belongs in a museum. Yes, Indy. And at this point, you might belong in a museum too. But uh, yeah, um, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. A bit of a stinker, but if you remember when they found the Crystal Skull, that it was magnetic. Mm -hmm. And uh, Indy plucks one of them off the back of the skull. And lo and behold, it's it's the Goonie coin. And you know what? Um, As much as that movie was a stinker, the coins, well, they're still good enough. I couldn't, I couldn't resist. <laughs> I had to. <laughs> now, in my research, I did go through the Pirates franchise, but I oh, could, the Caribbean. Yeah. could not match the coins to anything we see. There was a reference. I was uh, on the, the prop replica forum or the, the replica prop forum, I should say. Sorry, I don't mean to misquote that. And there was a question about them having shown up in, in Pirates, but I could not find a visual reference it, either. It's so. possible they were in one of the various piles. Uh, they were not ones in the chest no 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 black pearl okay the next one on our list this one we're going to go back into the realm of uh, handheld consumer appliances and uh, this one uh, from humble beginning yeah it's going to be another one of those rental props from the uh, this one from the modern prop company it's the Geigameter, and uh, this one oh 
Modern props sadly closed their doors in uh, 2020 after 47 years in the film industry, which prompts the question once again, where did everything go when they closed the doors? After seeing that Robbie the Robot go for that much, I could see this place just being like a haven of prop auctions. I have to imagine that probably the first thing was probably other prop houses were probably given a chance to buy up their stock. True. Because I mean, like when you, and I mean, if you haven't, if you're watching the video version of this and you haven't figured out what this is yet, like if you owned a prop house and this came up for sale, would you not try to buy it? Yes. Well, that's what I mean. And and I think that's probably the, the likelihood. Although if you're going to go out, you might as well go out with a bang. And I mean, put it on the open market and it'll make. <laughs> I would suspect it would take a whole lot more. I would think so as well because I hard fans. Well, that's just it. Nothing like a rabbit, nothing like a rabbid fan to spend $5 million on a robot. There you go. There you go. Anyway, this is the, uh, the Geiger meter and, uh, it actually began life as a Redmond corporation power scrubber and buffer, which, uh, is essentially an off the shelf handheld hard surface cleaning machine. Uh, then, uh, they added a plastic dome with some spinning lights and a pair of motorized realistic and I don't mean realistic as in realistic uh, looking or sounding, but realistic, the, the audio. Brand. Yeah, the brand. Realistic condenser microphones to complete the look. And if you haven't figured this out yet, well, the Gigameter, it's probably most famous for showing up in uh, New York City. There's something brewing under the street. I've got 1118 on the PKE. 2.5 GEVs on the Gigameter. Well, what does that mean? I don't know, Dana. What does it mean? Something. <laughs> yeah. In uh, 89's Ghostbusters 2, directed by Ivan Reitman, the Gigameter was used to measure uh, psychomagnotheric energy in giga electron volts, which apparently are the standard unit of measurement for high energy physics. Mm. Yeah. So some of the science is real. The device, however, not real. Not so much. <laughs> Sadly, just a few days ago on February 12th, just before uh, this show, Ivan Reitman passed away at the age of 75 and we miss him dearly. All right. But getting back to the Gigameter, the Ghostbusters were not the only New Yorkers to ever use it, believe it or not. Yeah. Believe it or not, these guys actually got around with it as well. Pizza dude's got 30 seconds. Oh yeah. Pizza dude. No. In the 1990 direct to home video, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Operation Blue Line the villain gridlock used it as his gloomsday device, not doomsday gloomsday, uh, where he could set it to destroy anything. Fortunately, the battery died triggering a fail safe mechanism, which resulted in gridlock himself getting vaporized. But then don't mess around with the Geiger meter. No, no. Then one year later, a most fascinating thing happened. That's right. The Gigameter left Earth with the crew of the USS Enterprise in search of the undiscovered country. There you go. In that movie, uh, it got back to being a scanner, but this time it was actually scanning for Klingon blood. Uh, Chancellor Gorkon, who was assassinated in that movie. All right. Since we're talking about Star Trek, I want to stay on that for a minute. And let's talk about one of the most recognizable shooting models in the entire franchise. Like, it's if you're going to mass produce something in a world, it makes sense. This is the one to do it with. Although, I mean, the ship models do get reused quite a bit, but this one here, let's take a look at this here. Uh, what are my thing here? Where's my thing? Oh, my thing. Here we go. 
And for everybody who just yelled at me, that's the next generation theme. Uh, it is the next generation theme, but it was the motion picture theme first. So na na poo poo on you. All right. Like everything else in the 1979 Star Trek, the motion picture, the orbital office complex was actually built for the canceled television project, Star Trek phase two. So uh, the motion picture is actually the only uh, on-screen appearance of the model as it is in this particular configuration. Now, if you're wondering what I'm talking about, well, when it came time uh, for the sequel in 1982 and the script called for a space station orbiting the planet Regula 1. Well, the production team, they dug out the office complex model. They stripped a few things off of it, flipped it upside down, and voila, you've got the Regula 1 science station in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And uh, clearly this design had gone on, has gone on to become a favorite uh, amongst Star Trek because, my it's God, this thing is a go-to. If it didn't turn up in actual model form, it showed up in the Okudagrams throughout the uh, all of the Star Trek series up to and including Star Trek Voyager. My God, there it is in uh, TNG, several episodes of TNG, Deep Space Nine. And again, like I said, there's an Okudagram there in uh, voyager where they're looking at it on the screen okudagram by the way is a reference to uh um michael okuda the one of the, the uh, designers he actually designed the l cars like the the computer layout neat yeah it's pretty cool you can check it out oh yeah and uh, yeah voyager so oh i missed it coffee black i know i know i should have been faster on the button with that one that's okay <laughs> okay so listen not everything can be as futuristic looking as it is in the 24th century, but even movies set in an alternate 21st century still need a specific look to set them apart. Mm -hmm. And uh, that brings us down to uh, this one. Which was exactly the case in 1982's Blade Runner depicting a dystopian Los Angeles in the year 2019. So when it came time to design exactly how Los Angeles would look, the production looked to Hollywood's first visual futurist, Sid Mead. One of his concepts was for a flying car that would become known as the Spinner. Now, uh, this car, like many of the other futuristic cars, is another one constructed by Gene Winfield. There you go. Exactly. The guy, same guy that made our uh, reactor car. Mm-hmm. Sadly, Sid Mead passed away in 2019, uh, but the spinner has endured because uh, several films have either uh, used the spinner or have paid homage to the spinner, including uh, Back to the Future, uh, Back to the Future 2, where you can see there's a repainted spinner parked in a driveway. And then uh, there's another shot where you can actually see it parked in downtown Hill Valley uh, in front of another famous uh, future science fiction car and that is the uh the sci-fi or sorry the uh the star car from uh the last starfighter store's closed mister i'm not here for cigarettes or bubblegum my boy can you tell me the name of the person who broke the record on that game over there where i might find him alex rogan there's a yeah and it's not in our slide but i mean if you guys can go online and you can check it out there's a really cool shot of them Kind of on the same row. And it's absolutely the star car. Nice. With the gullwing doors and the whole bit. Very uh, DeLorean-esque, though, by the way. 
Oh, All right. Back to the future. Um, so again, kind of we're in the same territory here now with Star Trek and whatnot. This next one, it might actually be uh, the most obscure thing on our list. And I say obscure because uh, of all of the on-screen appearances that it's, uh, that it's had, nothing, none of them have ever really defined what exactly it is. And we have no idea no, what it's supposed nobody, to be doing. Nope, nobody knows what it is. Nobody knows what it's supposed to be doing. But damn, does it ever look impressive. And it gets around. Uh, it does. So... Uh, simply called his most famous machine by modern props founder John Zabruki. There it is. I knew I wrote it down somewhere. Uh, the device has been described as uh, dual generators with rotating neon lights inside an acrylic tube with a light-controlled panel with knobs and buttons. That's a mouthful. Yes. Uh, but to fans of the contraption, it has become what some would call the most important piece of science fiction equipment ever. Now, this piece of gear was actually uh, made for uh, 1977. Yeah, it was made for the Incredible Hulk. Um, But man, as I said, this thing has gone on to become science fiction royalty, and it has shown up in a lot of other things, uh, such as The Last Starfighter, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, Star Trek The Next Generation, and another little uh, nod, a little jab at uh, our beloved franchise. Coming down here, there are literally hundreds and thousands of blinking, beeping, and flashing lights. Blinking and beeping and flashing, they're flashing, and they're beeping. I can't stand it anymore. Of course, that's William Shatner in Airplane 2. There you go. <laughs> Poking fun at himself. <laughs> All right, Andy, what do you think? Should we uh, head back over to uh, New York for a minute? I think so. All right, we'll go to New York. All right, going to New York City now. Hang on a second here. Got to get the flight ready. Here we go. Okay, here we go. We're going to New York. All right. Who you going to call? All right, the psychokinetic energy meter, or the PKE meter from the Ghostbusters trilogy. Spengler went down there. He took PKE valences, went right off the top of the scale, buried the needle. We're close on this one. I can feel it. PKE valences. That becomes a very important phrase throughout the franchise. Sweeping Uh, for valences. Sweeping for valences. This is the first device created by Dr. Egon Spengler before uh, they actually formed the Ghostbusters. uh, And he built it specifically to track and locate the presence of ghosts. Now, this originally uh, uh, was an Iona shoe polisher model SP1 sold by Sears back in the early 1970s. Uh, and in the seventies, it came in multiple colors, oddly enough, black, not one of them. <laughs> it came in just about everything else, but red, green, uh, oh, sorry. Black was one of them. I didn't even catch that. I retract that black was one of the colors. Maybe not the most popular. Maybe not. Um, so to make the prop, the polisher was gutted and then it was redressed with a bunch of lights and the retractable wings to give it a more science fiction prop look. And uh, just like its gigameter counterpart, the original prop was another rental piece from Modern Props. See, I'm seeing a lot of these, and they could fetch a lot on an auction market. Oh, man. I have a replica. I have the the Maddie Collector replica that Mattel produced a few years ago, and it is a gorgeous piece. Now, just um, imagine the original prop. <laughs> I almost want to, like, I, 
I understand now when I look at this stuff and I, I get it. I understand why amateur uh, prop builders go out and recreate this stuff. Like why cosplayers do it like with this like loving affection because and the amount of detail is mind boggling. How that physical thing connects you to the thing that you love. I mean, like every actor, I, I just watched a thing with Robert Pattinson talking about his, uh, like the, the, the GQ thing that they do, taking them uh, through your famous roles and they get to Batman and, and every actor that's ever played a superhero says the same thing. As soon as you put the suit on, there's something about putting the suit on and suddenly you're, you're bigger, you're taller, you're just <sighs> the prop thing. Holding something. Well, that's what I universe. mean. Like it just, it, it helps you immerse. Uh, it's just, it's so, so cool. Even when your kid picks up their lightsaber. Well, I mean, so anyway, I got this thing from Maddie Collector and I, t- I put the batteries in it and you don't want to know how long I spent scanning for ghosts in my house. <laughs> as long as possible. Right, right. Anyway, the PKE meter though, it's not just for scanning for ghosts. Um, it can be used for other things as well. Like, uh, where is it here? Either put on these glasses or start eating that trash can. <laughs> no, it actually can be used for tracking aliens, like in uh, 1988's They Live. Of course, that was uh, Rowdy, Roddy, Roddy Piper. Piper. God rest his soul. Or wonderful man. Yes, uh, if you're uh, if you happen to be uh, Hulk Hogan, <laughs> temporarily immobilized, he'll fall in about 20 minutes with a bad headache. Let's go. You would use it to track down and locate the freeze gun like uh, like he did in 1991 Suburban Commando. With Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, absolutely. Christopher Lloyd playing another movie villain. Uh, man, uh, he plays an awesome villain. He does. Okay, so not uncommon for artists to uh, sign their work, right? And uh, Hollywood director is uh, really no exception. But if your name is Sam Raimi, you know how you sign your movie? Very specifically. <laughs> You know how he does it? Yep. Yeah. With a car. A very specific car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh not just any old car. Well, no. it, it is an old car. It's a uh my god, it is a 19 where'd I get it? Uh, 73 Oldsmobile Delta 88. Delta 88. Yeah, so uh this car is nicknamed the classic, and it is shown up in virtually every Raimi movie, starting with uh, Evil Dead back in uh, 1981. And you know what? It did uh it did come back uh for all of the sequels. Including this is my boomstick. And if you missed it in that, well then you could have seen it again in the Spider-Man trilogy. Yep. With great power great responsibility uh yeah and then uh there's a whole whole bunch more um that we can talk about here but there's this unconfirmed i mean you can see them dark man 1990 crime wave 85 drag me to hell 2009 the gift in 2000 uh Raimi did a western do you remember that Quick and the, the quick dead. and the dead in 1995 and there's there's an unconfirmed report from bruce campbell that says that the cars, uh, they stripped a car down right to the chassis and they used the frame of the car to build a covered wagon. Hmm. Yeah. So the, the car does appear uh, in that. And then the other weird one is like, uh, Oz, the great and powerful. Would you believe the car is in there? I would not know where to look for I it. I wouldn't know where to look for it either, but Sam Raimi is going to tell us because we got a clip from San Diego Comic-Con. Oh, 
That car, the 1973 Delta 88 Oldsmobile Classic, is in the picture. It plays a very challenging role. It's not seen in its original form. It had to really alter its appearance to fit into the Land of Oz. But part of its engine block and part of its uh, camshaft was used to play another role. Part of the wizard's machinery. How cool is that? That's pretty wild. <laughs> kind of obsessive, though, isn't it? A little bit. I'm going to put it in everything I've ever done. Well, it wouldn't be the first time they took it apart, though. Why? Uh, I'm pretty sure Bruce Campbell's on record saying that uh, for one of the Evil Deads, yeah, they ripped a good chunk of the interior out so they could shoot from there. Oh, no. And Sam said, no, no, you put it back. You got to put it back together. Is it like his personal car? I think it might have been. Oh. <sighs> I read something else about this car. Did you read? Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe. So I don't know how much truth there is to this, but it is rumored. The reason that Sam Raimi puts this 73 olds in all his movies is because it's where he lost his virginity. <laughs> it's sentimental value. Did you hear that? I have not heard. Okay. That. I, I, I don't know. I read that when I was doing some of the other, like some of the research piece for this. And that's one of the things that came up, but I'm like, I'm not putting that in my notes. <laughs> but we talked about it anyway. Yep. All right. We're keeping it G rated. It's that time of the show where we go back to that place where we say we're, we're not, not we're not actually a Star Wars show, but we are, we are going to visit uh, the galaxy far, far away. And we're going to take a quick look at, you know what, uh, of all the things on the list, this might be the number one iconic piece uh maybe the number one iconic prop ever maybe maybe it's and, definitely uh, been uh, yeah. oh, replicated yeah, yeah. a large amount of times big time <laughs> oh yeah we're gonna talk about lightsabers lightsabers uh while modern lightsabers anyway have gone on to become these like custom uh aluminum uh, uh machined aluminum billeted chunks of metal um the Build original yeah well edge. you can't oh i know and they're aluminum too so want to do that <laughs> uh the original uh, i mean like the original stuff like the stuff that it showed up in 77 that would have been made in 76 uh not so much you don't really had didn't really have access to a custom uh, machine shop at the time to make this stuff but the use what you could Right. So we've got like Luke's, or what we would eventually go on to call the, the Skywalker saber, but Luke Skywalker's original lightsaber, the one that Obi-Wan Kenobi gave him, uh, was actually cobbled together from a, a few more uh, mundane items. So it, it actually started life uh, as a 1940s uh, three cell camera flash gun by Graflex. So, I mean, if you've seen some of these saber companies, sometimes they'll just refer to it as the, the, the Graflex the, and you know, or they'll say it, they'll call it the hero. Mm -hmm. Some of the third party saber companies, you know what they're talking about. It's the Graflex. It's the Skywalker one. So then uh, Roger Christian, who was the film's set director, he glued on plastic T tracks from a display cabinet, like the, the runners inside a cabinet, like mm. a drawer. And uh, that's what they became. Contrary to popular belief, those are not, windshield wiper blades hmm. which some people think that they are but no they are not That'd be more comfortable than uh, uh it might have been you all than the plastic yeah also uh added on some uh looks like calculator switches and then parts of a circuit board to uh, complete the look and make the first uh laser sword and you've got a you too cool i have uh, it's not a graflex by any stretch but uh 
But I mean, look it at the camera flash. It, and once you remove that piece, I mean, you've got your makings. I would, it's to me, want the mount from the I top. would, I would want to find some way to like disassemble this piece because you've got that, you've yeah, got that the bevel, nice, uh, the bevel, which looks just like the, the Vader mm-hmm. and the, the Skywalker one. Oh, sorry. Oh, the Skywalker one to some degree, but hold yeah. on to that because, uh, who knows? Mm-hmm. Make your own saber one day. At some point. <laughs> All right. In 1976, Luke Skywalker's lightsaber prop, it actually cost, what, $15 to make? Affordable. Yeah, yeah. 15 uh, well, fifteen nineteen seventy six dollars Yeah. Uh, but in 2012, one of the two original Skywalker saber props was sold to the Seattle Museum of Pop Culture for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars <laughs> wow that's what i say these prop houses if they're going out of business there is a market and just you know to keep in the spirit of like reuse props uh, this lightsaber goes on to feature in like seven or variations of it go on to feature in like seven more star wars films including the uh <clears throat> sequel trilogy what's mm-hmm. going on from that all right even Obi-Wan Kenobi's lightsaber, I mean, gets reused because, uh, and this is kind of funny. I was, I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, Obi-Wan's blue lightsaber in, uh, in a new hope is actually Luke's green saber in return of the Jedi. But then it's like, well, he's dead now. He's not going to need it. No. <laughs> All right. So we're going to stick with star Wars for a little bit. And we're going to go from, uh, the lightsaber prop, which can give you a close shave. <laughs> Very to, a, close. to another prop that could give you a close shave if you really, really wanted one. And that is the, uh, the what do you call it there? The comm link that uh, is used by uh, Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn in The Phantom Menace. Be mindful of the living force, young Padawan. Yeah, the communication device, it was made by taking a resin casting of a Gillette lady's razor handle, specifically the uh, Sensor XL for women, which you can still buy today. So you can still make your own on various uh, online uh, retailers that are still carrying this. I don't know. Can you still buy this? Walk into Walmart and buy this? Maybe. Anybody out there still using the uh, the lady uh, the lady razor the the lady sensor? <laughs> <laughs> Let us know. We might need uh, some help here for our next uh, round of props. All right. And although it never appeared again in live action that I could find. Uh, an animated version of this communicator does show up uh, in pretty much every season of the clone wars uh, right to the end. And uh, man, well, here we are. We're at the uh, end of our list and it's hard to believe man, we've been going for what an hour and 20 Around hour, hour and 20. We're getting down to the end here and we've got what we got one more. We yeah, got one. we got one more. And this one, the honor goes to, well, it's a, uh, what is it? It's a, it's a person okay it's not really a person but it is a picture of a person with an interesting story yeah with a very interesting story this one goes to our final our final prop of the show goes to the custom playboy centerfield from 1979's apocalypse now i love the smell of napalm in the morning (laughs) me too dude me too so uh the centerfold it is a custom playboy centerfold and that is uh, actress slash producer colleen camp and uh, in the film she actually shows up with two other real playboy uh, playmates on a uso tour now those playmates were the 1974 playmate of the year with uh, played by uh, cindy wood 
and Miss August 1976, uh, Linda Carpenter. As I said, all three women uh, in the movie show up on a USO tour of Vietnam. Now, technically, she's credited as playmate number one. Colleen's character is depicted as Miss May on the poster. And the photograph itself was shot by an actual Playboy photographer, Mario Casilli. And time for our last fun fact. This is a good one. This is a pretty interesting one. Uh, The role of playmate number one originally do you know who that was going to be i do um and it would have been wonderful would you but be- yeah would you believe playmate number one originally was cast and i don't mean was going to be was cast linda carter wonder woman herself but i mean for anybody who's a fan of apocalypse now you know that the the movie was like it was rife with problems uh, over its production uh they had a typhoon shutting down production and so everybody went back to the states and uh, at that, by the time they were ready to come back and shoot, Linda could not come back because she'd already been cast to play Wonder Woman. So yeah, uh, they had to recast it, and that's how it went over to uh, to Colleen uh, uh, Camp. Colleen Camp, yeah. Okay. So, um, but cool fact here: the uh, the Vietnam poster actually uh, survived the war, and uh, it actually went on to become uh, part of one of the most legendary comedy films of all time I'm a soul man. yeah it's on the wall of elwood blues apartment in the blues brothers yep that's uh yeah there's a bunch of other posters in there like uh there's um ray charles and and somebody else might have been uh was it aretha franklin maybe both of them actually show up in the movie so that's kind of a nice little nod but yeah the apocalypse now playboy centerfield on elwood blues wall i don't know man what do you think it's a pretty obscure one i like it (laughs) that's it we've come to the end of our list that's it 22 for 22 uh 22 for tuesday the second 22nd of february in 2022 Guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I did. It was a lot of fun kind of working with uh, you, Andy, to put this whole thing together. I hope that uh, you guys have enjoyed this. And uh, if you like this kind of content that's not particularly branded to any particular uh, intellectual property, drop us a line. Let us know. You can uh, reach us on all of our uh, all of our socials. And uh, let us know that uh, you'd like to see more of this type of stuff because we'd love to to do more of it. And we will do more of it. Uh, but as always, we'd love your input. So um, it definitely gives you a whole new appreciation for the amount of stuff that goes into it. Uh, it absolutely does. Like, like using yeah, just, what you can and getting away with what you can. I think that, you know, I'm pretty clever when I'm sitting here doing like, you know, thinking about dioramas for like 28 millimeter miniatures. And I'm like, oh, I can use a popsicle stick for that. Yeah. Oh, I guess it's similar on a much smaller scale, but yeah. All right. Maybe a bit more difficult in uh, one-to-one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we'll take a crack at this one again. Uh, next time uh, we do this, maybe it will be our, our sets. We have some other things coming up. I uh, reached out to a friend, uh, some friends of the show that we've worked with before who have uh, graciously agreed to come back to the show for another episode. So uh, have some cool things to look forward to in that respect. And on that note, I think uh, we're ready to wrap it up here. I think so. All right, my friends. Well, that's it. Another round of uh, another episode of Fandom Power in the can. I had a great time. Andy, I hope you had a great time. 
nice to see props. Everybody who's watching and listening down the road, I hope you've had a good time and we will catch you on the next one. So from uh, everyone here at Fandom Power, bye for now. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Fandom Power. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll be talking about another one of your favorite fandoms. Fandom Power is a Sawcast production.